you've got a Bible, we're going to read together uh, from Luke 10. We spent uh, the last, uh, this will be the fourth time we've looked at this passage, and it'll be the final time uh, we do so. Um, But thinking about it in different ways and and trying to reflect on um, this grand sending that Jesus does with um, his disciples in Luke chapter 10. So here we go. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. And when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If the head of the house loves peace, your peace will rest on that house. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, for workers deserve their wages. Don't move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat what's set before you. Heal those who are ill and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yeah, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We spent, as I said, a few weeks looking at this under uh, these headings. We talked about the way of mission. And uh, just to remind you that here you've got Jesus sending out 72 unnamed disciples. These are not the 12. They're not the apostles. They're not the ones we know. These are unnamed. We will never know who these people were. And they're sent to anonymous places. We don't know even really where those villages were they were sent. And what I was wanting to suggest was that actually the norm of the way that Jesus uses us is not flashy. It's not particularly well known. It's often our lives doing the stuff that's unnoticed, ordinary. In the best sense of the word, we are amateurs. And of course, you know as well as I do that originally the amateur was someone who did something for the love of whatever they were engaged with. Not professional disciples. Not because you have to, certainly for people like me, not because I'm paid to, but because I'm an amateur. And one who loves Jesus and therefore had just said, 
Use me if you can. I want to be an amateur disciple. We talked about the message, and it's kind of interesting in this passage that I think this is Luke's great commission, by the way, if you understand what I mean by that. I think Matthew has it at the end, but I think this is Luke's great commission. It's kind of like the model for everybody. And Jesus seems to spend a lot of time on how to go, but actually not a lot of time about what do you do when you get there. Two things. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom's here. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God's come near. And I wanted to suggest that actually it's in you. You are the agent of the kingdom. You're the sign of this kingdom. If the kingdom of God is simply the idea that God is Lord of all, then you become a representation of that. The way you act and react suggests there's another kingdom. And that'll be very everyday. And then heal the sick. Oh, that's easier said than done. But what do you go with? You go with the only resource you have, access to the Father. And you get alongside people and you go, I don't know how this is going to end. But the only thing I know how to do in situations like this is to pray. And if you would allow me to pray for you and with you, then who knows what God might do. And it's the only resource we have. We have nothing else. And we don't know how things will work out. And it kind of leads to that third element of mission, which is the vulnerability of mission. Jesus sends them out without everything they need. It's that brilliant sort of thing of, so Jesus, what are we going to go? How are, we gonna, how, how are we going to pack? You know, and and it, be, it would be easy to reflect on this. Some of you, when you go away for a weekend, you pack like you're never coming home. You know, sort of like you might be going on, on a weekend away in the middle of July, but you'll take salopettes just in case the weather really turns bad and you have avalanches in Tenerife. Um, it's kind of like we need everything. And Jesus says, no, 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 go really light. Because you're going to go trusting. And what will you trust? I'm, and it's kind of like so counterintuitive. You go so light because you expect the people to whom you go will welcome you and care for you. It's kind of not what you expect Jesus to say. And the vulnerability of mission is this. You never have all that you think you need. You never feel strong enough. You never think you've got enough wisdom. You never think you've got the right words. You never think you've got enough power. And that's how Jesus seems to like it. Not to make you feel small, but actually that you might not go and get kind of, to use the sort of, cocky. <laughs> if you thought you had everything you needed in every situation, you would be remarkably dangerous. Because it would be so easy, wouldn't it, to get arrogant. I know how to deal with this. But actually the vulnerability that goes, I have no idea how to deal with this does something to your heart. Well, that's what we did over the last three weeks. And today, I just want to speak for a few minutes around the joy of mission. It's, it's, it's almost kind of wonderful when you get to um, verse 17. So that you've, you've, 1 to 16 is Jesus preparing them to go. And then verse 17 is they've clearly come back. And we don't know what the time frame was. We don't know if they've been away for a week or two weeks or a month or two months. But whatever the time frame was, they came back and they say, they said, Lord, 
They return with joy and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to you in your name. It's like, it works. It's kind of like, we never thought it would work, but it works. I think it's really interesting that they come back and say, the demons, the demons submit. The agents of the enemy are the enemy of God. These enemies of God. And it's almost like these guys, these disciples are coming back and going, we went to the darkest places and we saw them change. We went to the places where it felt like everything had been torn apart, but God did something and something changed. Jesus explains. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. I think what happens is this, that God who created this good world, a world that was created to flourish and a world that was created for him, that fractured because of sin, In a sense, just as when um, that original sin back in the garden happened, and it's kind of like everything started to crumble. It's like the relationships between men and women crumbled and fractured. Not finally, not totally, but enough to know that we still live in a world where often, and it's not always, but often, men can do dreadful things to women. Where's that come from? Well, the relationship where we were supposed to be interdependent, where men need women and women need men, and actually we were designed to work together for the good of all. It becomes a power struggle, and men can deal with women really harshly. And women sometimes can deal with men really harshly. Where work, which we were designed to do and be in the flow, work, you didn't start work because sin happened. You, you were always designed to work. But you know the days when you work, whatever your work is, whether it's paid or unpaid, but you know the days when you get home at the end of a day and you go, that was a good day. It kind of like, I just feel like it, it, it all flowed. I, I felt like it was in, you know, this, those terrible phrases that I feel stupid saying, but in the groove. No, that's not a phrase I can really get away with. But you know when you... <laughs> yeah, I don't laugh too much. Um, but it's, 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 it, you just like, it feels like you're working with the grain. You were looking after the kids. And it just went, it just went well. They didn't kill each other. You didn't kill them. They didn't try and kill you. It's a good day. Everybody comes home going, that was great. It's kind of like we were, just, we were just flowing together. You were working on the spreadsheets. You were working in the office. You were working doing the stuff you do. And it kind of flowed. Well, those are great days. And they're great days because they don't happen every day. <laughs> they're standout days. But that's how work was designed to be. But it fractured. But the other thing that happened was that in God's good creation, evil seems to find a foothold and works against God's good creation. It's been a bad week in our world. It's been a bad week. 
it was a bad day in Charleston when a young white guy turns up to a Bible study in a black church intent on shooting those who were there. It's a bad day, and it seems banal to use even the word bad. It's an evil day when a guy goes to a beach with a Kalashnikov in a parasol intent simply on killing. It's a bad day when people do unspeakable atrocities to a company in France. It's a bad day when people are attacked in Kuwait. It's been a bad week. And tomorrow some of you will find yourselves in conversations with people who go, how can God allow that sort of stuff? And they will want to ask that question. It's almost like an accusation against us. Well, the biblical story is this. That actually there are evil forces that threaten to, that attempt to tear apart God's good creation. That's the world we live in. Now, people may or may not agree with you on this. But in a sense, that's not the deal. The deal is, do you understand Do we understand the biblical story we live in and actually enables us to make sense of the worst of days? There are evil forces that seek to tear apart our own world. And it's the way the world was created. People are responsible, but there's an evil force that kind of like feeds the supposed reasons. Whether it's poverty, or injustice, or revenge, or political idealism. It's almost like evil comes in and takes on that and pushes it against God's good creation. That's why we have bad days like that. And in a sense, what the disciples, these disciples back then, what they'd done was they'd come back and they'd said, we've seen demons submit to you. And Jesus says, I've given you power to overcome. Um, What does he say? Let me get the words right. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. So what does that look like? Well, I think what's gone on was in individual cases, sometimes you get involved in situations where evil has been starting to tear apart an individual and you go in and you minister in the name of Jesus and you can see a difference. And you become the agent, you become the means of God releasing individuals or families from the situation that they're in. That prayer of, I don't know what we're going to do here, but the only resource I've got is to come and pray with you. I can share with you what I have. The family that are in the car, we can share what we have, but actually the greatest resource we have is that we might ask God to do something here. And we're not escaping from a situation. It's the only real resource we have. And suddenly you become an agent that actually in the context where one family's life is completely disintegrated, you become the agent where you start to see it come back again. How else do you overcome evil? Well, you saw it in Charleston. You saw people who'd lost their family and lost their worship, their fellow worshippers stand up. And on almost, I think it was within 24 hours, said, we forgive you. We forgive you. 
And what that does, it tramples on the enemy and it overcomes evil because it says we refuse to let evil have the last word. Evil is stopped in its tracks because we forgive you. Because that is not natural. (laughs) The natural is kill him. That man deserves to die. I will never forgive you because you've taken the most precious things we have. I will hate you until you die, and I will hate you after you're dead. (laughs) And the Christians in Charleston come in, and they show that Jesus gave them the power to overcome evil by going, enough. What does it cost you to say, I forgive you? And of course, how can you do that except the one we follow, who did exactly that? Who stands on the cross saying, Father, forgive him. It stops. It's like you throw yourself in and you pay the cost and you overcome evil. It's quite powerful, isn't it? Please, God. Please, God, we never have to do that in such a dramatic way. But tomorrow, when they talk about IS, in a month of Ramadan, when what one group of radical Islamists are trying to do is disrupt whole continents in order that they might get more supporters. That's why they're going around. What does a Christian say? Actually, blessed are the peacemakers, not the revenge takers. It's the only thing we know. It's kind of like being a contrast people. Let's just pause for a moment. I've got something else I want to say, which is not as heavy as what I've just said. But I think it would be right just for us to pause. I know we've already prayed, but why don't you just stand to your feet for a minute? And why don't you just pray? Because there are Christians in Tunisia, there are Christians in Kuwait, and there are a lot of Christians in France. And they need to work out how they're going to follow Jesus right now. And I don't intend to lead us in this, but why don't you just start to pray out for those situations that you're aware of? Pray for those Christians in Charleston because your first reaction might be gracious and forgiving, but actually there must be times when you go, God, help me to keep on forgiving. Let's just pray for the God's people, wherever they may be, that they would be the peacemakers and the forgivers, the ones who trample on evil and go, it stops and it stops here. Just where you are, just start to pray. Not so others can particularly hear, but just start to pray that your own prayer might be added to the prayers of the church all over the world that will be done this morning. That you might pray and intercede for the world in which we live. Let's pray that evil doesn't win. Let's pray for the radical Islamists, that they do not get their way. Let's pray that the uncertainty and the instability and the chaos will not win in God's good creation. Let's pray against the powers and principalities. And let's pray that Jesus wins.
The earliest prayers of the early church was encapsulated in one word, and it was this, Maranatha, which simply means, it's an ancient word, it simply means, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Not that we might be lifted out of a situation and rescued, but that Jesus would come and restore all things under his uh, headship, under his lordship. And so we pray with 2,000 years worth of history behind us, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May your glory be seen fully. And may we who worship you ahead of time, Lord, may we be the sort of the early adopters of what will be true when every knee bows before you and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, where there is no more evil, where those who are intent on evil doing are no more. Lord, we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we bless you. So what does all this mean for us this week? Sometimes uh, when you're sent by God into uh, the context you're sent to, to share the good news of Jesus, sometimes you get to see the story from the start to the finish, but most time you don't. But I want to tell you that mission works. I heard uh, a woman this week, and we'll call her Sue, who's a social worker, and uh, she was telling me that um, unlike other contexts in which she's worked as, as a social worker, her boss um, was a brilliant boss, still is a brilliant boss, kind, encouraging, brought cakes into work, was supportive, celebrated all that they were doing. And for her, it, she was just enjoying having a boss in that context of the office where he was so supportive. And uh, it was probably a few months before she ever uh, found out, I mean, six months, before she ever found out that her boss was a Christian. And she couldn't believe it, just couldn't believe that a Christian would be like that. She'd been taught, in a, when she was younger, she'd been taught at a church school. And all she'd found there was that religion was cruel and hard. And though they may have talked about God being loving, there was very little evidence in her opinion. And so to meet this man, her boss, who was just kind, it was like difficult to equate. Because the Christians she'd known had not been like that. Over time, she was intrigued enough to talk to him about his own faith. And in time, he said, well, my church is doing an alpha course. Would you be willing, would you be interested in being a guest? And she was, she still, and it sounds, when she was telling me, I'm thinking, really? Um, but she said, I was, I couldn't believe that he wanted to invite me to alpha. <laughs> on the inside, but he's got a pulse. Um, <laughs> she said, I'm overwhelmed, just overwhelmed that anybody 
would want to include me in a Christian frame. And she went to Alpha and she became a Christian. And now she's worshipping alongside her boss in his church. Because one bloke, unnamed, in an anonymous place, just turned up, not with a tambourine and a Bible to bash, but simply with, actually, I think this is how life's supposed to be. And I'll act out of that. And it'll involve support, and it'll involve celebration, and it'll involve cake. And one woman sees a different side of life that she never thought was there. I've got a friend um, who's called Chick. Uh, Chick and Margaret Yule, and they live uh, out in South Manchester, not very far from Withenshaw. Chick and Margaret were, are retired Salvation Army officers, and um, Chick is uh, an itinerant preacher. He goes all over the place preaching. But Margaret, when she retired, she decided that what she wanted to do was on her street where she lived, and they lived in a, in a sort of a, a street of newish houses um, that had just been built. And she decided that she just wanted to be a blessing to her neighbors. And uh, so she decided, I think it was one of those situations where they were kind of like one of the first on the estate of the, the houses that were being built. So they were kind of like ahead of everybody else coming in. So everybody who comes into that estate, she buys a plant for or bakes a cake for. The cakes seem to operate quite heavily in this mission model. And um, uh, just welcomes neighbors and all the rest of it. In fact, she decided that in order that she might be able to build relationships with her neighbors, she would offer her services as a cleaner only on the street. She's not doing it for a business. She just wants to offer, or if you're very nosy, um, but she just wants to offer her services to folks on her street. And she just offered her time as, as a cleaner and uh, just went to clean people's houses. And she's got to know loads of people, and she's just like a means of blessing in that street. And uh, Chick and I are friends. We used to work together for a period. And uh, he was telling me about uh, two Sundays ago, I think, uh, maybe three Sundays ago, uh, they put on Sunday brunch for all their neighborhood. Uh, they do this from time to time, it's not a big deal, but they just put on brunch for their neighbors, and at Christmas, they do a little carol service on their driveway. It's kind of like they're just building a community down uh, just on that new estate in uh, Brooklands. And uh, that's, their, that's their brunch um, that was happening a couple of weeks ago. So I was aware of that story. And then two weeks ago, I was praying with Ian at Wednesday morning prayer meeting and uh, you can pick up the story from there. Um, yeah, that Wednesday, the day before, I'd gotten to a chat with one of my colleagues at work. And over the years, uh, they all, they've known for years that I'm a Christian. And everybody comes in. It doesn't take long before some, you know, conversation starter happens. And we end up talking about why I'm a Christian and all the stuff that we've, some of the stuff we prayed about today. Why does God allow suffering? All that stuff. Ten, it tends to be that they open the, the conversations up. Uh, and I'm only too happy to oblige to continue it. Um, he started to talk about it. I've known him for about five years now. And he started to talk about science and uh, religion and evolution and philosophy and all sorts of different things. And you know these sort of conversations that become very abstract and everybody likes to chip in a little bit. But it was essentially, let's try and prove Ian wrong. <laughs> and I was trying to get them to sort of say, well, it, it's, there's no conflict between science and religion and all this stuff. I was trying to get them, trying to get them back to what I wanted to get to, which was what about your relationship with God? <laughs> you know, forget about evolution and all the rest of it. What about your relationship with God? Anyway, we, we had this debate, and for about an hour, one of the staff members got up and said, 
oh, we're not going to beat Ian. He's, he's too stubborn. I'm off. And she went, she went and left. And the other one, he usually just swears and says, oh, that's a load of rubbish as soon as we start talking about God anyway. And he walked out. And it left me with this guy. Um, and he wanted to continue this debate. And gradually, because we were taught for such a long time, it was about an hour and a half in the end. We don't do any work, uh, <laughs> which is brilliant. Um, it, was a good day, it was one of those good days yeah, you talked about. <laughs> Didn't have much to do. Um, and he, we got to, yeah, but what about Jesus? And we got to a discussion. But it still ended up when you think, I'm not sure God I've done anything good there. He had as many answers for me as I had questions for him. And he had as many questions for me as I had answers for him. And it, and it just felt like, all right, God will, whatever that was about, you know, just to pray that you'll keep, keep chipping away at him and you keep, keep uh, speaking to him. But it felt a bit frustrating at the end because, you know, I didn't lead him to the Lord or anything. And it was a bit like, you know, I didn't feel like I'd got made any ground at all. And then we prayed. And, we? That's, and that's what Ian said um, at the Wednesday meeting, 7, 7 a.m. prayer meeting at the Vine. Um, you're all welcome. We're so holy. <laughs> and, uh, and, you, and that's exactly what you said. We were ch- chatting before, and you said, oh, it just felt like it was a conversation that didn't go anywhere. So anyway, so amongst other things, we prayed for uh, your, your colleague and prayed for the, uh, the, the context, and off we went to work. Yes. That's it. No, no. Th- this next day, the next day, he, uh, we both got into the office early as we usually do, and there's just me and him in there. He's there ridiculously early for some reason, um, and I was the next in, and he's working on a website. So he's, his little sideline is he builds websites for people, and he's working on a website, and he started talk- he'd been telling me that his neighbours, they'd moved into a new estate in Withenshaw, and his neighbours had invited them round for brunch. Uh, <laughs> And actually, I knew that he'd talked about this before, like a week before. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And she said, oh, yeah, she's on the neighborhood. We have this neighborhood watch thing. And, and then they come in and they, they offer to paint your front door and give you the painting. But then you give the money to charity. And she said, he said, I think it's something to do with church. She's pretty full on anyway. Uh, and it was something to do with church. And I was like, all right. And then the next day after this, we prayed. He said, I'm doing a website now for this couple that came round. They actually followed up this brunch and came round. And, and I'm doing a website for them. I said, all right. And, and he has the website up. And I said, I recognize that face. And he said, yeah, do you know him? He's called Chick or something like that. I was like, yeah, I know that, you know, there's not too many chicks around. Uh, and, well, um, not male anyway. Not male, no. <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, I, I've heard him preach before and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we got chatting and he's, he's offered to do this website for Chick. Uh, as his, and it's basically all about his, you know, his, his blog. He does this blog about what he's, he's sort of observed and preaches he's done. And I just thought, and, and he, we talked about the, the day before about coincidences, and I'd said to him, there's only so many coincidences that happen before you start to think maybe these aren't coincidences. And, and as he said that, I thought, I nearly thought, I nearly said, oh, that's God, you know, but I just said, that's a coincidence, isn't it? And he went, yeah. And I just thought, <laughs> and then he opened up again and started, he wanted to continue this conversation, and, he, and it, this time it got more, a bit more personal, you know, it was less abstract, and he wanted to carry it on. Anyway, for the whole week, we've had these little bits, but I went home thinking, wow, God, like, God uses, and I thought about Paul and Apollos. Paul says, um, you know, some people say I follow Apollos, and some people say I follow Paul. He says, it doesn't matter as long as Jesus gets preached, and Paul might plant the seed, but Apollos might water it. And then, I, and then I thought about the gospel somewhere. I think it was, I think Jesus says about the, the sower and the reaper. Some, you go in and you're reaping what other people have sown, and and so that you'll both be glad in the end, the sower and the reaper will be glad. And I just thought it was just a great picture of how God uses different people. It's almost like he's weaving different people into into the story. And although I haven't seen 
the end result, which, which I want to see. God's using me and God's using Chick and Margaret. And just, it, was just, it, just really, it really encouraged me. I thought, oh, great, I'm not on my own, mm. you know. So why does mission work? Well, mission works because the spirit is involved in ways that you could never possibly think of setting up. They come back from mission and these disciples go, it works. It works. And then the final thing Jesus says to them is this. It does work. But there's something better. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All my life, really, I've thought about that kind of text being almost like a class register. Kind of your name's in a ledger, you know. And I think it probably does mean that, actually. I think it does have that idea of actually you are known. But there's another sort of thought around it. Your name's known in heaven because you're part of heaven's story. It's not as static as tick, you're in. It's much more dynamic. Your name is written in God's story. Because he still wants to use you. So these disciples come back and they say, Jesus, we saw remarkable things. We didn't have everything we needed. We only had the resource that we have, which is who we are and what God can do. We're not known. We're not the stars. We're just the ordinary ones. But they come back and they go, it's remarkable. And I think the reason Luke includes that story is because 2,000 years later, people like us read it. And we go, that's us. That's us. <laughs> 30 or 40 years after you've died, people might not even know your name. But your name will be in heaven. Part of God's story. Part of what he wanted to do for the sake of his world. Let's pray a blessing on one another. May the grace of God rest on you. The grace that reached out to you when you were far away, may that grace be known by you again. May you know the sort of absolute rock solid being held in the relationship through Christ. Your name is written in the book of life. And your name is written as part of God's story, what he's wanting to do. So, Father, will you give us eyes to see in the ordinary places this week what you're up to? Will you help us hear what your spirit is wanting us to, to hear? And will you give us lips that can speak, not clever words, but wise words? And Lord, when we feel vulnerable, will you give us uh, a confidence that comes from outside of ourselves, that we might serve your purpose wherever we find you. Lord, we make ourselves available to the God of mission, 
the same spirit who sets up situations in brunch, at Sunday brunch, and then at work, in order that someone might hear some better news. Lord, do it amongst us, we pray. And may we see a rich harvest for all we're involved with.